If you will, take out your copy of God's Word. We're going to find our way to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. As I told you when I first started this series, probably by the time we complete preaching through the book of Hebrews, your Bible's just going to flop right open to it. Especially if you have like a church Bible, and then maybe you have a study Bible at the house that you study from all the time. Uh, but you will find your way there. Hebrews chapter 6. The three main points we'll be looking at today is God's greater promise, God's greater oath, and God's greater hope. Those are the three main points as we walk through this passage of Scripture today. Um, and I'll have a short video clip before I get to point number three, just to give you a heads up on that. Uh, but today as we walk into this, you know, sometimes we make promises, don't we? We make promises. Promises to go somewhere, to do something, or complete a request. Now, as a human being, sometimes, unfortunately, we don't confer or complete that promise. Because we're fallible. We're mankind. Things come up. Things happen. Uh, our bodies sometimes don't allow us to get to where we need to go. Because sometimes we get sick. Sometimes we injure ourselves. Things happen. And we can't complete a promise. You know, our promises are normally held by our word, which is our character or integrity. Our promises aren't valuable if our character is weak or our integrity is compromised. That's usually how that works. And our promises, if known to be kept, gives others hope regarding a future promise to be fulfilled. Uh, and when I think of those things, I think about how Jesus... Uh, Jesus is the greatest promise keeper. He has made these promises all throughout Scripture. God made promises in the Old Testament, which the author of Hebrews talks about. We're going to speak on that some today. But Jesus is the fulfillment. He is, his fulfillment is greater than any other fulfillment that we'll ever see. Jesus is our greatest promise keeper. And that is through his fulfillment to complete the work he was given. In him is our hope. In Him, He is our anchor, and in Him is our future. And today we're going to look at these three things that I mentioned just a moment ago. God's greater promise, God's greater oath, and God's greater hope. If you have your copy of God's Word and you found your way there to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, if you'll read along with me, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. It will be on the screen. You can follow along there. Scripture reads such as this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Talking about Abraham. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So as we look today in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, our first understanding is that God's 
God has a greater promise. And this is God's greater promise that he makes to Abraham. So read there verses 13 and 15 as I reiterate these uh, to us today. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise, talking about Abraham obtaining that promise of God. So as we look here in the first verse there, he references Abraham and he speaks of Abraham. Throughout this epistle to the Hebrews, the author talks of Abraham ten different times. Abraham is vitally important to the life of the Israelites. I mean, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, as the old children's song said. And that's where we come to this understanding about the value of Abraham. But yet... Even in that promise, the fulfillment of that promise to Jesus Christ, Jesus is greater than Abraham. We've talked about early about how Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the high priest because he is a forever high priest in the line of the order of Melchizedek, which he still touches on here in this, ver this section of Scripture as well. Jesus is greater in his fulfillment and the promise made to us through Jesus, is even greater than the promise that God made to Abraham. So as we think about the value of Abraham in all of this, to our author, Abraham was a significant figure. Not only because of his faith in the promise of God, but also because of the part he plays in the story of Melchizedek. Here's that name again, right? You're going to hear a lot about Abraham, Melchizedek, throughout Hebrews. God's faithfulness to his praise to Abraham is a token of his faithfulness in regard to another of his promises that concerning the Melchizedek priesthood. You see all how God is making these promises and holding them true. He made that promise to Melchizedek that one would come in that order and one greater than even Abraham. So, but though, what is this promise that God made? We see that it is referenced there in verse uh, 13. Where God made the promise, and he not only swore, he made the promise, he swore to himself. He made an oath. So he made a promise and an oath. And so that's, God cannot lie. So you knew this was going to come true. But what were the promises made to Abraham? Well, there was a threefold nature in that covenant made to Abraham. One, it was that God would give Abraham offspring as numerous as the stars or sands of the sea. That was one of the, the, first, uh, the, the first of the threefold nature of the covenant to Abraham. The second is that God would provide those offspring with a land of their own, a good land flowing with milk and honey. And third, the third point of that is that God would bless all the nations of the earth through these offspring. And we find that in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Then we see in Genesis 22, 15 through 18, it's one of the promises to Abraham as well. It says this, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. There's that as we reference there in verse 13 of Hebrews 6. He says, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and not and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And after Abraham had been willing to offer his miracle son as a sacrifice to God, showing his complete and utter trust in him, God adds to his promise an oath in order to secure it even more firmly in the mind of Abraham and those who come after. It cannot change regardless of the circumstances that swarm about God's people. God wanted to make sure Abraham was confident in him. God says, this is my promise, and I swear by me, the immutable, unchangeable, omnipotent, omnipresent God, that this will come true. It's not going to pass away. It's not going to pass away. This is going to come true, this promise that God made to Abraham. And he promised it, and he put an oath after it. And listen, if God's promise is true, and if evil and satanic powers exist, then one can expect to find history riddled with division over Abraham and his offspring. And we see that, don't we? We see that. We see that because of, number one, there's Judaism. Judaism. And then second, there's Islam, right? There's Islam, and then there's also Christianity. So history is riddled through evil and Satan's powers to try to cause division over Abraham and his offspring. And it comes through those three predominant, most uh, that's the most numerous of the three religions in the world. Uh, those are the three biggest religions. Hinduism is probably really close, but those three are the three biggest. Some might conclude that Abraham's presence and the promise made to him had actually led to the cursing rather than blessing of the earth. Some may have thought that, but we know better, right? We know better. The promise of Abraham is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As I said, Jesus' fulfillment is greater. Jesus' fulfillment is greater. We see in Galatians 3.8, it tells us, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. The gospel was already being preached in that Old Testament, as we have said. Secondly, Paul goes on to write there in, in that epistle to the church at Galatia, in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. That promise was made to Christ. He would be, Abraham would be, and Jesus Christ would be a blessing to all the nations. So the promise of Abraham is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But also the promise of Abraham is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ's kingdom. In his kingdom. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, the scripture reads like this. And in those days, those kings, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Talking about Jesus' kingdom. We are part of that kingdom. And then in Revelation eleven fifteen. 15... 
The scripture says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He shall reign forever and ever. So the promise of Abraham is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ's kingdom. Now, my second point today is God's greater oath. We see God's greater promise that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But he not only made a promise, but he made an oath as well. And we see that in verses 16 through 18. The scripture says, For me, men, excuse me, for men indeed swear by the greater. And there's a lot of times we, we don't want to swear by ourselves because people, we want people to know this is a big deal. Now, granted, we... In most of the Bible, it tells us don't swear at all. But this is saying, if you do swear, for men indeed swear. It's not saying whether it's good or bad, but they do swear nonetheless. For men indeed swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. It's saying, okay, I swear by this. I, you know, so many times you've heard people say, I, I, I swear on the Bible, which is, you know, uh, I, I still don't like that. But, you know, people do that. You know, you go into a court, it says, put your hand on the Bible. And you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. I don't know if they do that anymore or not. They probably have abandoned that. We are in a new culture and age. But nonetheless, it's what you used to supposed to do because the Bible meant something to people. But you would make that, that, that oath saying that what comes out of your mouth is honesty. And you'd make that, uh, that oath. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, that's, that's all of us as believers, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So the basis of one's oath's validity was the unchangeableness of the things by which one swore. If something could change, it, it, it loses its credibility, doesn't it? If something could change, it loses its, its, its ability to stay and be constant. If one were to swear by some unchangeable object, then it would be blaspheming that object if the oath were not carried through. Here, God not only promises to bless and multiply Abraham, but he also uh, swears to accomplish it. Thus, there is double certainty. It is impossible for God to lie under any circumstances. And certainly under this double guarantee, the promise is secure. Abraham's offspring is going to be blessed. First off, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. And then we are part of the oath. That we are heirs of the promise. We are heirs, uh, as that scripture said, heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel. That's us. You know, we have promises made to us. And promises are broken to us, aren't they, sometimes? Promises are sometimes broken to us. Many of you have probably experienced broken promises. Many of you have probably experienced broken promises. Some of you right now are experiencing postponed promises. Promises, I'll do this. Some of you, you may have wayward children or grandchildren. They make a promise. I promise you, I, I will do this. I promise you, it's, it's postponed. You're praying that this is not a broken promise, but you're praying this is a postponed promise. We pray that you'll see that happen. We pray that, that those promises will come true. 
You have postponed promises. The promises of God are real, and the promises of God will be fulfilled. The promises of God are real, and they will be fulfilled. We think about this. Promises made by man are hard to believe they will be fulfilled. As a dad, I have always tried to make the least amount of promises to my kid as I, my children as I can. I try not to make too many promises because I don't want to break my promises. But when I do make a promise, I'm going to work to every end, every nth degree to see that that promise is fulfilled. I'm going to do everything I can. But you know, I, I, I'm a... I'm a fallible human being, a father who fails at times. I make mistakes. I don't follow through on promises. I wish I could say that wasn't true, but it is true. That happens from time to time. But I know that Jesus Christ and God the Father, God the Father is a greater father. He's a promise who keep, He's a father who keeps all of his promises, and there is nothing that can stop or thwart his promises from coming true. There's nothing that could stop him or thwart his promises from coming true. And his promises will be fulfilled. And this is a big deal. Y'all listen to me. It's a big deal. God's promises will be fulfilled in his time. In his time. Not yours or mine. Notice how long Abraham had to wait for Isaac. So long he and his wife got impatient and chose a different path. A terrible path. The reason why we have Islam today. They chose a dark, terrible path. Because they abandoned what God said would come. He told him, you will have a child. Just be patient and wait on me. It's a postponed promise. But yet they weren't willing to wait. Sometimes God's promises are worth I mean, all of God's promises are worth waiting for, but you've got to be willing to wait on them sometimes. Spoke to the students today, uh, talking about how we, we don't see but the moment. And in the moment, something could seem really bad, but God's got something really good right down the road. And you say, God, why is this, why is this happening? But yet, there may be something really good happening right now, and God's trying to build you up and encourage you and, and put the Word of God in you so, so that you will let the Word of God dwell richly within you. That sound familiar? Um, so that it will dwell richly within you so that when that bad time comes, you're prepped, prepared, stored up. You've written His Word on your heart so you won't sin against Him in the hard times. So we got to be ready for those postponed promises. But His promises will be fulfilled in His time not yours or mine and it was 99 years at 99 Abraham was given a promise of Isaac that's a long time before Isaac you know it I mean we got a couple of folks that are in their mid 90s and we got others in their 90s here at this church could you imagine waiting a few more years before you have your first child whoa I mean you'd be like Lord that's a postponed promise right there. I'm telling you, that's a postponed promise. You know what I mean, both my kids are born out the house and in college, and I was looking forward to that because I'd be 44. Man, double that up, and I still ain't got a child, but God's done made a promise to me. I'd be like, Lord, I don't know. That'd be, that'd be really nerve-wracking. It'd test your faith, wouldn't it? It would test your faith. But at 99, Abraham was given the promise of Isaac. Long a time, long before Isaac. But nevertheless, God provided in his time 
not on Abraham's timetable. So I want you to understand, God can postpone his promises, but he swore with an oath, didn't he? So God's greater, God's got a greater oath. He says the oath then is in, um, Thomas Hewitt wrote in his epistle to the Hebrews, he said the oath then is an end of all strife or gainsaying, for it reveals the serious intention and determination of the person behind the oath. He, he, he made that very clear. He was very clear in that. So in concluding this thought, I've got a little bit more here. So in concluding this thought, in a promise, the assertion, the assertion of an intention is made. In an oath, the person's character is publicly and solemnly put behind the assertion. That word, I don't know why I want to say that. In a promise, we look at the words. In a promise, we look at the words. In an oath, we look at who and what the promiser is. I'm going to say that again. In a promise, we look at the words. In an oath, we look at who and what the promiser is. A gentleman by the name of Lovett once wrote, Had Christ, had God the Father sworn by heaven and earth, I might have feared, lest as they shall pass away, so his word might also. But when the Most High swears by himself, who abides forever, my fears are gone. My fears are gone. Abraham didn't have to fear. He didn't have to fear. As should our fears. When God makes a promise and seals it with an oath, we can be assured of his faithfulness and in his character to see that completed. And in this scripture, right at the last part of uh, verse 18, as we read this, um, excuse me, at the end of verse 17, it says, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So in this scripture, there is language here used of two immutable things, and those are his word and his promise. Homer A. Kent Jr. wrote in his commentary, he said, the scriptural principle of two witnesses for establishing legality underlies this argument. And the unchangeable God is faithful. His word is sure and always dependable. But when it is confirmed by an oath, it is even more worthy of our trust. In all of this, the weakest Christian should find strong consolation and comfort. In all of this, we should find strong consolation and comfort. And as we move, as we've come from God's greater promise, and we've looked at God's greater oath, we're going to look at God's greater hope. And when we think about hope, and we think about the hope of Jesus Christ, Jesus is our greater hope. You know, uh, in one of those clips it said, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then he's ta she's talking about you are our hope. You're the only hope we have. And, and Jesus Christ is our sure hope. We shift now from looking at these promises. We look at the oath, and now we look at the hope. And Christ is our anchor. Look there in verses 19 and 20. It says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So now we shift to an anchor Christ, the believer's hope. We have two descriptors of this anchor of, of Jesus Christ. He is sure and he is firm. That's who Jesus Christ is. 
And this anchor is secure because he, Christ, our anchor is unbending. It is sure to hold because its flukes are strong and cannot be twisted out of shape or broken. In like manner, Christ in his own person is absolutely reliable and fully worthy of our trust. That's who he is. He's our anchor. And what is meant by this when he talks about the anchor of our soul, sure and steadfast, it is that we are moored to an immovable object. And that immovable object is the throne of God himself, established in the heavenly holy of holies, the counterpart in the eternal order in the inner sanctuary of the wilderness tabernacle, shut off from the outer sanctuary by the heavy curtain behind which dwelt the invisible presence of the God of Israel. That's what F.F. Bruce says about this anchor that is Jesus Christ, our hope. And we are, along with the readers of this epistle, as we're reading today, we are anchored to Jesus Christ, who had entered into the very sanctuary of God's presence, and there secured amidst the solid rock. Nothing can move that anchor. Nothing can move that anchor. For it's fastened to the very heart of God that is immovable in its sacrificing and redeeming Love and the motivation of his heart from the very foundations of the world. Nothing is able to alter that determination that was willing to give his only begotten as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. That's what Evans wrote in his epistle. We also see our hope in that Jesus is our forerunner. Jesus is our forerunner. And Kent wrote in his commentary, as a forerunner, Christ differs from all Old Testament priests who are representatives of men, but nothing more. Jesus is more than that. The word forerunner, as we read there in that latter part of our text in verse 20, it says, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This word is prodromus. And it has three stages of meaning. It means this. First, it means one who rushes on. One who rushes on. Secondly, it means this as a forerunner. It means someone who is a pioneer. The first of his kind to go somewhere where people have not been. He's a pioneer. And thirdly, it means this. A scout who goes ahead to see that it is safe for the body of the troops to follow. Jesus went into the presence of God to make it safe for all men to follow. That's who Christ is. He is our forerunner. That's what Barclay wrote in his commentary. To call Christ a forerunner denotes the believer's prospect of eventually being where Christ now is. That's what it means. And he is already in the actual presence of God, not just in some earthly counterpart. This differentiates him from the Levitical priest. And he is in the order of Melchizedek. And this also explains why he can be a priest forever. For Christ is the ultimate reality. Not in the passing earthly setting. As Kent wrote. But Jesus came. God was the distant stranger. Whom only a very few might approach. And that, that at peril of their lives. But because of what Jesus was and did. God has become a friend of every man. God has become a friend to every man because of what Jesus did. By going behind the veil, as the scripture says there in verse 20. He is a forerunner. Excuse me, that's in verse, the, the conclusion of verse 19. 
and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, being Jesus, or even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So he is, he has entered there, and in by doing so, he has become a friend of every man. Once men thought of him as barring the door, now they think of the door to his presence as thrown wide open, because Jesus has entered in there. And because his blood is applied to our account as believers in Jesus Christ, no longer are we seen as enemies. No longer are we seen as apart from him. We are seen as a part of him. And so therefore we can enter as sons, as heirs of the promise. We can enter boldly into the holy of holies and come into the presence of God. That's the reason why we can do that. Because Jesus is, was, and forever will be our high priest and the forerunner for us. That's who he is. So for us who believe Jesus is our scout. He is our leader who has run first this race and can take us through it safely and surely. He has become a merciful and sensitive high priest after the order of Melchizedek, having more than fulfilled all the necessary qualifications of a high priest. And listen, as we conclude here today, This is the word. This is the word of our hope and our forerunner. And because he has gone where we could not go, now we can go where no man before him could go because now he is there currently. This is what we can look forward to. And this is our hope. This is our hope. Our hope is Jesus Christ. And listen to this. From Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Jesus says to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you. Listen to this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, which he has, I will come again and receive you to myself. That is hope. And here is the forerunner. For where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know. And, uh, and the way, you know. And just like any of us, there's somebody who's got to ask a question. And Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus gives us one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture in John 14, 6. Jesus responds to Thomas. And he says, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man shall come unto the Father except through me. He is the forerunner. He is our hope, and he has gone before. He's gone behind the veil and made a way so that you and I can participate in salvation and have a relationship with God the Father. We can come boldly before the throne because of what Jesus has done. Not because of what we have done. In grace alone, which God supplies, as the song sang, as we sung earlier in the service. It is by grace through faith that you're saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is how we come into the Holy of Holies. It is by God's grace that He has given us His Son, Jesus Christ Christ. 
so that we may have salvation. It is by His blood applied to us so that we may enter in without the condemnation of the sin that is a part of us. But by the blood applied to us, no longer are we withheld from the presence and the relationship. But now we are present and able and, and, and capable of being in God's presence and having a father-son relationship with Him. So how should I conclude this? I want to look back and walk you through that John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. It tells us to not be troubled. Don't be troubled. For you believe in God, believe also in me. So don't be troubled. Well, How can I just say this to you? Just cold turkey, don't be troubled. Because apart from Christ, you should be troubled. You should be troubled if you don't have Christ as your Lord and Savior. But listen, if you have Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't be troubled. You believe in God? Don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. You believe in Jesus? If you believe in Jesus, you believe in God. Because Jesus makes the way to believe in God. So you believe in Jesus, you believe in God, and then you're not troubled. You believe in Jesus' words, He tells you, I'm the hope, I'm the forerunner, I've gone to prepare a place. Do you believe Jesus' words? Do you believe His word? Do you believe it? If you believe it, you believe Jesus. If you believe Jesus, you believe God. If you believe God, you ain't got to be troubled. So what's keeping you? To follow Jesus. Thomas asked the question, how, how do we know? How do we know the way? We're, we're, Jesus says, you know the way. I am the way. I am the way. Don't be confused. Don't follow the world. Don't follow the Old Testament priest. Don't follow any of these things. Follow me. Peter is having this conversation with Jesus. And John is standing behind him. It's in the Gospel of John. And Peter says, uh, Jesus tells Peter, he says, when you're old, you're going to be led around by the hand. You're going to be told, people are going to take you where you don't want to go and all this kind of stuff. And Peter says, well, well, what about him? And Jesus says, what's that to you? You follow me. Jesus says, what's that to you? It don't matter. Jesus says, quit worrying about, he's not telling him not to be concerned for their souls. He's telling him, you be concerned about how you follow him. Are you following Jesus today? Are you more concerned about, well, so-and-so over there is not doing this, and they're skipping out, and they're doing it. Hey, Jesus says, quit, quit, worrying about, quit worrying about everything else. What about you? That's my call to you today. What about you? 